0: Pray with me. Our sovereign Lord, you are wonderfully beautiful and satisfying. I pray this morning that you would move in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and cause serious joy to well up in us. Open our eyes and our ears to understand your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Show us Christ this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Thank you, the one person. Um, My name is Brock. I'm on staff here. I I, I heard there wasn't coffee, so um, I'm glad someone over here is still with me. Um, I feel honored to open God's Word with all of you today. Um, So if you don't have a Bible, um, you can raise your hand. Um, The strike team will come down with Bibles. You can open up to Psalm 99. We'll be in Psalm 99 this morning. We are going to be continuing in book four of the Psalms with the emphasis on Yahweh Malach, or the Lord is King. If you are new to your Bible or to the Psalms, they are a large collection of poems that were meant to be sung. Though it may not seem like it, Psalm 99 is a joyous psalm. This psalm is emphasizing the holiness and the mercy of our sovereign king. So let's dive into Psalm 99, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave Him, gave them. Our Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. This is God's holy word to us. I want to ask the question, what comes to mind when you think of God's holiness? Maybe some words that come to mind are mighty, transcendent, pure, sovereign, incomprehensible, all-powerful, or any other big words that you can think of. God's holiness is a bit difficult to define. How do you describe his transcendence, his sovereignty, his omniscience, his grandeur, purity, and on and on. In one sense, it does mean set apart. But in what specifically? God's holiness is really a way of trying to describe his godness. And here is here's our problem. Often, we are prone to have a view of God that is weak Small, irrelevant, and insufficient. What I want to look at today in this text is the holiness of God. Because when we don't have a proper sense of God's holiness, it hinders the way that we worship Him and the way that we understand ourselves. Many of us lack this sense of God's holiness. And surely, the culture that we live in is not helping There is almost this cultural rage. Uh, Maybe you've seen this against all, any, or all authority. Sometimes, rightfully so, but most of the times to their downfall. In our culture, by and large, it has become normal to disrespect people who are in authority solely because they are or they have authority over us. And I think this comes from a perceived notion that I am my own authority. And I get to decide what is right and what is wrong. Do you see this in our culture? Our culture looks at the people in high positions and wants to notch them down in their authority in order to some way raise ours up. And this attitude often has carried itself um, into the way that we, as the church, can view God his church, and his holiness. We are prone to notch God down and try to raise ourselves up. And most of the time, we're unaware that we're doing it. We often lack a sense of God's holiness. And when we lack this, it hinders the way that we worship him and the way that we view and understand ourselves. So there's three themes that I want to look at in this text. The first one is God's holiness displayed in his wrath. The second one is God's holiness displayed in his justice. And the third one is God's holiness displayed in his mercy. Like I mentioned earlier, this psalm is a joyous psalm, but yet it also has a serious reverence towards the Lord. So, theme one, look down at verses one to three. The Lord reigns. This is the Yahweh Malak that we've been talking about. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome, literally terrible name. Holy is he. The phrase, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, is very important when it comes to this whole psalm. It is painting for us a picture of what is called the mercy seat. This is where God would meet and speak to his people. It is between the cherubim. Remember this. Um, Listen to the description of the mercy seat in Exodus 25, 17 through 22. It will be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. It says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them. them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim, cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the face of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is the picture. The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. It is the picture of the mercy seat that they would have had in their mind. And what this means is the priest was commanded to go into the temple, into what was called the Holy of Holies, which was the most holy place in Israel because it is where God's presence was most manifest. Here's a linear order or maybe concentric circles of the manifestations of God's holiness in Israel from, most, from holy to most holy. So first you had Israel itself. They were God's people. They were set apart, a holy nation. Then moving in, then you had um, from among the people, you, were, you had the priests who were set apart for the service in the temple. Then moving in again, within the, within the temple itself, um, this, the temple was is de- the designated place where God would meet with his people. And inside the temple, you had the first room, which was called the holy place. This is where the priest regularly went in to perform his ritual duties. Then um, there was a second room, and this was called the holy of holies, um, which was entered in only once a year by the priest. This, in this room, this is where the mercy seat was and where God spoke to his people. This is the mercy seat that sat between the cherubim. The mercy seat was also where wrath was dealt with. Like I said, once a year on a day that was called the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies with blood from a bull that had been sacrificed and sprinkle it on the mercy seat between the cherubim for the sins of the people. Now before he went in, the priest had to make atonement for himself and for his household. Before entering the Holy of Holies, so that he would not die upon entering into the presence of God. So it is here between the cherubim at the mercy seat where God's wrath was dealt with and where God spoke to his people. Friends, we do not have a God who is okay with sin, rather, he is a wrathful judge towards it, and we are sinners who sin against him every day. Do you have a reverence toward God and his holy wrath? Look throughout this text. Verse 1 says, Let the peoples tremble and let the earth quake. In the end of verse 3, holy is he. The end of verse 5, again, holy is he. And the end of verse 9, the Lord our God is holy. Do you have a reverence towards God's holiness when you pray? When you literally are speaking to God before His face? Do you have a reverence towards God when you are reading your Bibles? In Nehemiah 8, Ezra reads God's word to the people, and their response to his reading is they stood crying out, amen and amen, lifting their hands and bowing their heads with their faces to the ground in worship when Ezra was just reading God's word. Do you have a reverence for God's holy word? Or how about coming to church? Is there any reverence for God's holiness that you feel coming here on Sunday mornings to worship together as God's people? There is much of this sort of juvenilization, if I could use that term, of church in America. In many places, it's dumbed down, entertainment-focused, with messages that are centered on, around self-help and not on Christ. There are many people today, I fear, that have lost a sense of the holiness of God on Sunday mornings. We are warned of this reverence we ought to feel in 1 Corinthians 11 27 through 30, concerning communion, that we ought to take seriously the holiness of God in relation to our utter unholiness and our desperate need of Christ our Savior. Friends, we would do well to meditate on the holiness of God when we pray, when we read, and when we come together to worship. Because we do not have a God who is dismissive towards sin, and we are sinners. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this is a joyful psalm. (laughs) God's people would have sung this. But when the people would have sung it, it would have not been some chipper um, feel to it. Here, the psalmist has a reverent joy or a serious joy. It is a joy that Devin preached about last week that has its foundation in God himself. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a joy that has a foundation. Our joy ought to be a serious and reverent joy at the holiness and the greatness of our God. Here's an example that might help illustrate this, how we feel both this joy and this reverence. Have you ever seen or read about people that climb Mount Everest? There are many precautions taken in order to accomplish the climb. They have a joyful desire to climb the mountain, and they are very serious about the way that they prepare because there is a respect or a reverence for the mountain itself. If you started climbing the mountain in flip-flops, sooner or later it would catch up with you, most likely sooner you can have a joy-filled desire to climb without a rightly placed reverence for the mountain and then might end up not preparing well for the climb and not last. Now, this is, of course, a silly example because how infinitely more should we feel a reverence for the holiness of God and his wrath towards sin and a seriousness To our joy in the redemption offered us in Christ? Do you have a reverence for the holiness of God's wrath towards sin? So, the second theme I want to look at is God's holiness displayed in his justice. Look at verses four and five. It says, The king in his might loves justice, you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. God in his holiness loves and delights in justice. This comes from his character. It is a part of who he is. The whole concept of justice was created by him. Everyone has a desire to see justice carried out. This is because... We were made in his image. We reflect his character in this way. Nobody is indifferent to justice. Many just disagree on what is just. But our God loves justice as he defines it, though. This can kind of be a bit of a sticking point for a lot of people today. We want to define justice different than the way God defines it. We still feel a desire for justice, but we want to disagree with him on what that looks like. In our sinfulness, we think we are smarter than God. Not only does God love justice and equity, he has established its very being. Without God, there is no justice or equity, right or wrong, and if some people have a problem with that, by definition that doesn't make sense. Think about our modern social justice. Who gets to define what is just and unjust? Because our culture is trying to do that all the time. Listen to Isaiah 5:20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The battle today for justice is largely a battle over the dictionary. Who gets to define what is just and unjust, right and wrong? As Christians, we feel the redefinition of terms and the redefinition of justice every day. Or at least I hope you do. Our lack of love for justice out of our lack of love for justice, we as followers of Christ sometimes can be caught being swayed by the cultural relativism that is all around us. Is being hyper-aware to never step on anyone's toes what the Bible means by love and justice? It is not love by any standard to shake hands with unrighteousness. This is where the church ought to call what is just, just, and what is evil, evil, as God defines it. Least we be accused of being the ones in Isaiah 5.20 that call evil good and good evil. How do you use the sword of God's word to fight against a post-truth society? Or are you just being swayed back and forth in the society's new dictionary? As Christians, we ought to know our Bibles well so that we can think clearly about what God requires of us and what is truly just. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what we pray for. But that does not, but that does not mean that we do not have a backbone when we engage our culture. Because our God loves justice, and so should we, the way that he defines it. Our God also executes justice for his people. Again, we see God is not dismissive towards sin. He does not sweep it under the rug. In his love for justice, he deals with sin. Remember the mercy seat, the place where God's wrath towards his people was dealt with. God not only deals with his wrath, but also disciplines his people. For example, this, song, this psalm is a post exilic psalm, which means that God's people were just in exile because of their sin and hardness of heart. God's people ought to be and will be holy, for he is holy. He will keep his people from sin through discipline for their good. Listen to Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our God executes justice and righteousness. In his people, not by arbitrarily excusing their sin, but by dealing with it and disciplining them as his beloved children. For our God loves justice, our God also loves mercy. This is the third theme I want to look at. Look at. So look down at, at verses um, six through nine. And here's a question I want you to think about as we read verses 6 through 9. How can mercy be just or holy? How can mercy be just or holy? So, verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In a pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. This pillar of cloud that God spoke to Moses and Aaron in is explained in Exodus 13. It was, called, or sorry, it was a cloud that went before the people of Israel to guide them. It guided them across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where, uh, when Pharaoh sent them out of Egypt. The women just studied this, in, so these might be making some connections. This cloud represented God's presence with his people and his protection towards them. And in Isaiah uh, 4, 5, and 6, the cloud of God's presence is promised to us in the new covenant. So let's keep reading down in verse 8. Our Lord, or sorry, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. We see that Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were sinners. You were a forgiving God to them. That's their sinners but an avenger of their wrongdoing. That's their sin. Again, let's go back to the question, how can mercy be just? How can a holy God have fellowship with sinners? Remember in verses 1 to 3, the terribleness of God's wrath towards sin. Because we do not have a God who makes friends with sin. And the mercy seat that the priest stood before once a year was a perfect example of that. In verses 4 to 5, we see that our God loves justice. God disciplines his people, specifically through their exile. So how can this God have fellowship with us sinners? The answer is what is called, big word, double imputation. And what that means is on the cross, our sin was imputed to Christ all the ugliness and the vileness of our sin was placed or imputed on Christ. Then the righteousness that Christ had and has is now imputed to us, the sinners. You see the doubleness. Our sin to Christ, Christ's righteousness to us. The spotless lamb of God takes our sin, dies in our place, and gives us his righteousness. God now sees us as holy and blameless and above reproach. This is the es- essence of the gospel. Listen carefully to 2 Corinthians 5:21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the great exchange. Our sin is given to Christ in exchange for his perfect and spotless righteousness. We receive this by coming to him by faith alone. And when we do, we receive the righteousness that is not of ourselves, but it is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of us. So how can mercy be just? In the Old Testament, these sacrifices were to point God's people to the coming Messiah. To the coming Savior of his people. Remember the mercy seat where God spoke to his people and where wrath was dealt with. God spoke to his people from between the cherubim, proclaiming to them his righteousness, holiness, and mercy. Now, in the New Testament, God has spoken to us from between two thieves that is, through his son on the cross. Not only has he spoken, but God has brought us near to himself in Christ. Christ has stepped down from the mercy seat and become like us. Rather than having sacrifices performed before him, between the cherubim, he himself became our sacrifice so that we may reign with him. Revelation 3.21 talks about he will grant us to sit on the throne with him. Do you see the exchange? He has made his righteousness in Christ alone so that, as Romans 3 says, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. This w This double imputation um, is illustrated well in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that book... Um, I would highly encourage you um, to read it. It's a story of a man named Christian who is on a journey to uh, the celestial city um, meant to represent heaven. Um, it's an allegory of the Christian life and the trials um, that this uh, Christian um, faces on, on his journey. And Christian, in the story, um, has a large pack on his back. That's a great burden to him. This represents the sin and the guilt um, in his life. So I'm going to read a section um, of the Pilgrim's Progress. So uh, story time. And listen um, for the way that we see John Bunyan um, describing the way Christian encounters the cross. So this is when he encounters um, Christ and, and, and the cross. It says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway... "'up which Christian was to go, was fenced on either side with a wall, "'and that the wall was called salvation. "'Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, "'but not without great difficulty, because of the load that was on his back. "'He ran thus till he came to the place somewhat ascending, "'and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a grave.' So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with, up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble, and it continued to do so, and I saw it no more, till it came to the mouth of the, of the grave, and it fell in. When, the, when Christian, glad and lightsome, And he said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. Then he stood a still while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of the burden. He looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him, peace be with thee. So the first one said to him, Thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of clothes. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid him to look on as he ran, and that he should give it at the celestial gate when they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Do you see the picture? At the sight of the cross, Christian's burden fell from his back, representing his rebirth. This pack falls into the grave, representing being buried with Christ. He is clothed with new clothes from another, representing the righteousness of Christ that is given to him. This is our double imputation. Our sins placed on Christ and his righteousness given to us. This is how mercy is just. God is far too holy to have fellowship with our sin. Do you have a reverence for his holiness? Do you see your own sinfulness? Have you come to Christ in faith? When we lack a sense of God's holiness, we can be blind to what he declares just and, what, and we will be blind to our own sinfulness. Do you see your need for a savior? Have you come to Christ in faith? If not, then verse 8 is not true for you. God is not a forgiving God to you, but you are still in your sins. He is not avenger of your wrongdoing, at least now, but he will be one day. And we will pay outside of Christ, we'll pay for our sins outside of the grace of God. The good news is that the promise of forgiveness in Christ still stands Our God's name is terrible and awesome. He is holy and just. But friends, he was also supremely merciful. Look to Christ. See the perfect justice of God against sin and his incomprehensible love for his people. He is a forgiving God to all those who are called. So come to him by faith and receive the free gift of righteousness in Christ that is offered to you. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that in Christ you have made a way for us to have fellowship with you. You have given us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see your beauty, and I pray that you grow our sense of your holiness. And that it would give us a serious joy in all that you are for us in Christ. Fill our minds and our affections with a love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.